Hi, this is Deb Carragher. I'm your guest host on the Yay Today, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Today, I'm going to interview either your regular hosts, Reg and Norm. We'll see what they're thinking and what's wow. going on in their, their world. This is exciting. <laughs> the, I was so excited by the music that I forgot to talk. <laughs> I love funk. Yeah, oh yeah. And Will Hammond figured it out. Yeah. Well, if anybody was going to. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? I think I saw I, it. I had a contest where people had to figure out I was going to give $100. Oh, to, to where the song was. And no one really did it until maybe a year later when Will Hammond figured it out. Mm-hmm. It's a group called Chocolate Milk, and it's called Say Won't You. So. Chocolate Milk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love, love one-hit wonders. You know, there are right. a bunch of one-hit wonders out there. Yeah. So do you usually go through these topics? Uh, first or end. Usually okay. we, we ask, you know, how is how, how is everyone's um, uh, holiday season? Yeah, how was your holiday? Also, we'll start with Norman. Uh, holiday for me was Hanukkah, and then and then weirdness for Christmas, which was cool. We normally do a bike ride for Christmas, which we did. But um, this year, Mara um, also works at a Catholic school. And they um, hired her to play the, it wasn't midnight, but they, what they were calling the mass, mass for the Christmas kids. Eve. Mm-hmm. Well, it was for everybody, for the congregation. Oh. And so she said something about the choir. Oh, she, I said, well, I want to see this because I just think it's funny. <laughs> so I'm like, I really want to see this. Um, Had you been to a midnight mass before? Or I a pseudo midnight mass? Through fourth okay. grade. Okay. So, you know, and that's what. She was kind of incredulous, and I was like, I know these songs backwards and forwards. Like, I can sing the whole thing. And she said, well, maybe you should be in the choir. And I said, well, I wouldn't mind. So she mentions it to the guy. Uh He invites me to come. I do one rehearsal, and I actually sing the Christmas Eve show with her. Nice. So that was unusual, but but fun. Did you have more than one mass, or was it just the one? What they do is a weird sort of concert. So from, like, 9.15 to 10, or almost 10, is a concert, and then 10 is Mass. And we do that at St. Dominic's, too. We have a Christmas Carol mm-hmm. thing before the Midnight Mass, which is which I, starts at 11. Christmas Carol would have been better than what we did. <laughs> I mean, you can't stop people from singing along, but we did a bunch of different things, and we had a couple of soloists, and okay. at one point we did a, a Celtic Alleluia. Oh, I love oh, the nice. Celtic Alleluia, actually. I don't even know. I'm, like, I'm just sitting there. <laughs> I'm sitting there with people on either side of me, and then it's been so long since I've sat through Mass. They start doing certain parts. Like, I grew up with... Well, they changed know, the words of the saying. Mass in, I don't know, 2012. Something yeah. like that, because that's I'm used to the... God be with you and also with you. Yeah, it's instead like, God of. God be with you and, and with, with your, your spirit. spirit. I know, like, I still find it oh, weird. So we don't care about you, we, we just care about your spirit. Okay, I'll, 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 I ain't got to like you, I'm just going to praise your spirit. Like, I thought, you know, on the one hand, that's more honest. They mm-hmm. say it's a better interpretation of the, oh, of, the, of the text. Of the original, of the Latin. That's what they say. Mm. I, I believe it. I so still have people say it. The what I love was seeing your picture. Christmas was Christmas Day. No, gee, was it Christmas Day? Um, uh-huh. it, may, it may have been was Christmas Day. No, no, no it wasn't. It was a picture. picture of me and Susan Kendall and Craig. And Craig. Yeah, we had that. It was Christmas Day. Um, <laughs> so there was. A, so in the morning, um, Craig Dickerson uh, took me to. Um, there's a um, couple 
who uh, actually is doing really good work. They're, uh, I guess they're helping out uh, refugees, uh, people who are, you know, who need, who need help. And, um, and they're an old retired couple who I guess has money. You know, they live in Alameda in a wonderful gated community. It's, you know, you step in these homes that you can never afford. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you know, this is fantastic. But, you know, they're very down to earth. And they uh, there was a family from Guatemala mm-hmm. who was there. And there was a guy from uh, Italy mm-hmm. and a, a woman from, I believe, the Slovenia. Wow. The, uh, Slovenia. All of these people that they've helped out um, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Later on, it was like an East Enders reunion. You know, we uh, were ate over at, um, I forget the restaurant right next to Scott's on Jack London Square. Oh. Lugwear. Lugamar. Lugamar. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a nice. Yeah. yeah, that's good. So, Jeff Thompson, um, Susan Kendall, huh. Craig Dickerson, and ourselves, we had our Christmas dinner. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, it was really, really wonderful. It was good to see Jeff out and about. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't get out much. He doesn't get out much. You know, he's he's wheelchair bound. He's getting oh, out more. He's getting out more. Yeah, now. He is getting out more. Great. Uh, thanks, Craig. You know, Craig's really been there for him. And um, yeah, we talked about you know like old productions and you know old war stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoy these theater war stories. Like you know, the worst times you were in theater and you know crazy directors asking you to do things that you know, and and the history of theater. You know, you get a lot of history of the Bay Area theater. Right. Through the, the old through these folks, because they know, yeah. Yeah. We talked about, uh, speaking of you, Deb, um, there was one, I'll, I remember a picture, because I joined EastEnders through um, your, the show you directed, Wonder of the World. Mm-hmm. And, but I remember... Like you were there before then, but... No, no, not really. I was, uh, I, I, you remember Bob Zick and Travis Bedard and all that? We were part of a group called uh, Bay Stage, uh-huh. headed up by a guy named Michael Tower, and... We last three productions, and then the money ran out, and people started fighting, and it was, it was really crazy. And then we sort of disbanded. And while we were rehearsing Mike Ward's piece, um, Isis, uh, Summer Shorts, Cross Wires, we were in the same rehearsal area as you, I think, when, when we were – this is – I don't know if you remember this. Church, uh, no, 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 no. This was in, um, like, I want to say south of Market. It was like a little small area. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's when you met me for the first time. You sort of interviewed me to stage manage for you. But I remember Chuck had all these pictures, and there was a picture of you in a very, you know, exquisite oriental, almost uh, Chinese um, traditional garb. And I was like, what production is that? And I can't. I don't know what production that is. I mean, I have an old picture of me in mm-hmm. pe- uh, a piece of my heart where I'm in a Vietnamese Maybe, but was it an East Enders production? No. Okay. Hmm. Well, there was an East Enders production where you, I mean, you always look fantastic, but you were looking exceptionally fantastic. Thank you. I, mean, this just I feel like I, I, <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. I know if we, you know, if we, we called Susan Kendall or whatever, because she remembered it almost immediately. Oh, okay. We were talking about all the old stuff or whatever, so it was, it was nice. It was a wonderful thing. Oh, I'm sorry, thank uh, Christmas. Christmas. What did you do for Christmas? I actually, because I have been quite sick mm-hmm. um, with a chest and sinus cold, I said no to all my offers of lunches and dinners and mm-hmm. Christmases, and I slept all day. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that was exactly what I needed to do. I watched movies when I was awake, mm-hmm. and then I mostly just slept yeah. and ate soup. You and your cat, did your cat take care of you? My cat sat with me and purred. Um, he threw up once. Um. My cat is sick. So. Yeah. yeah. We had that yesterday. Yeah. I woke up to that sound, and here's how horrible it is. I'm like, that's on your side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not getting on this board, man. That's on your 
said, uh, and I said, I said something. She said, I know. I know. I said, okay. Tell you don't love mm-hmm. The cat, I guess, felt guilty, came back in the room and suddenly you hear her on the phone. Oh, no. <laughs> trying to cover it up. Trying to cover up. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, no, kitty, don't do that. Don't. She's still like, no, no. Stephen, was, was there painting? Because remember, Dexter. Painting is happening. Dexter, oh, um, painting is happening. So, no, Dexter's job, my son wants his room painted. Mara said, that's fine. You're going to have to help. <laughs> yeah. So they dismantled everything. There was a shelf, a uh, set of shelves that are that were strapped to the wall. Uh-huh. Um, and he's got his whole console and game crap. And um, he had to, and mostly what it means is when you move stuff, all that dirt. That yeah, it's back yeah. Everything <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. He had to help clean all of that and get stuff out and dismantle stuff and get it out of the room. And, and I just, I stayed away. I was. What I was color did he choose? He's gone with a dark Almost dark blue. I mean, it's mm. it's like somewhere between like a royal blue and a dark blue. Okay. Um, which is better. He was going gray because I guess gray is very fashionable. Right it now. is. But she's like, your bedroom, dark gray. <laughs> no, you're not going to do that. So I think at this point the ceiling is going to stay white. There's one main wall, you know, one wall with no windows, doors, or anything on it. And that one That's is going to stay color. white because oh. he wants to... No, he's got this idea about these triangle designs that he wants. Oh. Mm-hmm. He games, and he sees the videos and stuff. And so, like, he wants the chair. Mm-hmm. There's a big chair right now, apparently, that he's, like, all about. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he wants to do – he says he wants to do the design on it. Mm-hmm. So I think what she needs to do is to give him, like, a two-day deadline. He gets back on the second and uh, give him a two-day deadline on mm-hmm. that. You get back – got two days for us to do this. If not, we're just putting everything back in place as is. I'm a little surprised that he doesn't do, because I've seen these gaming, these, these folks on YouTube who just do nothing but gaming, and some make money off of it. But they usually have like the, the blue screen or the green <coughs> screen, and they project something on it, I don't know, post-production, but he's well, not can. Yeah. He might want something like that, but the way he's set up right now is his bed, you know, sort of dominates one corner of the room, and then this thing is over by the door. Mm-hmm. So between those two things, there's just space to walk around. Oh, okay, got it. But I don't know. He yeah. might. He has visions of, you know, they're making lots of money. This is the biggest entertainment <laughs> industry. Yes, my twelve-year-old niece wants to have a gaming YouTube channel. No, why? She's not allowed. She's too. But what I what I want to point out is, it's the biggest gaming industry. You know, the other big entertainment industry, Las Vegas. Do you know how they make money? Fools like you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. For everybody who's making, who's getting the jackpot, there's hundreds, literally hundreds of people like you playing, losing, yeah. and that's who's paying for that. So, yeah, uh, whatever, dude. <laughs> Enjoy your game and just, and he's not gaming as much. So, yeah, he was gaming the summer. He was gaming crazy. Well, good. He's leaving his, de- his he's chair and getting up. And no, he's it. not getting up. He's doing homework. Oh, he's doing homework. He, he needs to do that. Classes and for the first time, because she's been bugging him, he'll they get into debates about homework. Well, it's just boring. It's stupid. I don't. I, now he's doing. Um, he's doing chemistry. He's doing physics. He's doing architecture. Wow. Yeah, he got excited about architecture last spring. Okay. And so he added that into his mix, and then he's doing AP English. 
and he's grade wise doing okay with it. And it's so funny because he fusses every now and then, but we're no longer hearing the occasional it's boring or it's stupid. But then he'll explain to you why it's boring and it's stupid. And as he does, you can hear him adjusting in his brain. Oh, but that's, or maybe that's because uh, nice. he's already solving. So. That's great. That's great. Okay. I just, you know. It sounds like we all had a good holiday then. Yeah. yeah. An adventurous one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of you. There was yeah. some adventure. So originally I had wanted to interview you earlier in the year. I'm close to, um, you guys worked on um, Reg's Play Together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I didn't have a chance to look through all the episodes of the EA to see if you had ever been interviewed before. No? no. So why don't you, mm-hmm. Reg, why don't you start and give like a little short precy about your life in the theater? Okay. And, you know, <laughs> origin story. Yes, an origin story. <laughs> well, um, for folks who may have listened to episodes like one through, because, you know, the first six episodes, it was just you and I talking to right. the, uh, to each other mm-hmm. and talking about it. Just to remind people. But, yeah, a, a refresher. So I was born in Texas. Uh, my dad was uh, stationed in, Bear- in San Antonio, Texas, um, Fort Sam Houston. And I was born in 69, and um, I think the plan was to come to California, but Mom was homesick, so uh, we moved back to Washington, D.C. And I'm raised in Washington, D.C., in D.C., not the suburbs or anything like that. And um, really, I think I got my first um, bug of, of acting of any type in the church. I basically, you know, uh, they, I was very articulate uh, when I was young, and I was an only child for a long time before my dad remarried. And um, we had a church lady say, hey, I want you to read this Bible verse, you know, memorize it and all that stuff. And there would always be these little skits and plays and things just to get the kids involved. It was a wonderful thing. I think Metropolitan Baptist Church really had a nice program where they got kids involved with you sing or if you, you know, could recite things or whatever. So that's what I did. And then um, there's a school called Duke Ellington School of the Arts. And um, not knowing what I was going to do while I was in junior high school and needing something to get myself out of, you know, which was really becoming a very dangerous part of D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, I auditioned for Duke Ellington in the summer of 84. Never really wrote, read a traditional play before. And the first one I picked up, ironically, was Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun. Walter Lee Younger. (laughs) And, uh, you know, um, no one really told me what the significance of it was, but, you know, I grabbed it. So you did the monologue from that? Yeah. Walter Lee Younger, you know, I'm going to, you know, go down to the man, tell him, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know. Mr. Charlie. Mr. Mr. Charlie. Mr. Boss Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that won everything over. I mean, you know, I won the, the folks over and I uh, got into Duke Ellington, which was a complete surprise to my family. They were like, what? They didn't even know that I had auditioned, you know? Oh, wow. And, um, and that was really it. That was really a changing, you know, and we got to learn beats and monologues. They gave us Stanislavski. They gave us a lot of heavy stuff for young kids, <laughs> especially at the, at the, the dawn of rap and hip-hop, you know, we were listening to Run DMC and all that stuff, and at the same time, we are reading uh, Sartre's Nausea, mm-hmm. and um, um, what's the woman's name? Um, Respect for Acting Budahagen. Oh, uh-huh. You know, just to see who can retain it, who can't retain it. There are a lot of people who are flushed out, but a lot of us retained it, and um, then I 
auditioned and got into uh, to uh, NYU, and uh, that was a wonderful experience. And, and I then you studied the same books. <laughs> sort of, yeah, sort of the same books, and you know we had a lot of really um, brusque uh, teachers like um, Alan Langdon and. Um, and I always and say when my Greco. students audition for NYU or Tisch, yeah. that it's a school that tears you down. Yes, for, yes they it, do. It will build you up the way it wants to, right. but it tears you down. <laughs> they, you know, I remember one class, uh, I, because I was doing a lot of this and a lot of that. Uh-huh. You know, they like, stop. <laughs> I'm going to handcuff your hands, kick <laughs> them down, and <laughs> do it again. And they really tear down all of your cliques and your, your sticks and stuff like that. I got a, uh, mm-hmm. um, a holiday greeting, a Christmas, Merry Christmas from Curtis. Yeah. And he was our James Baldwin in Four Men, and that was for two weeks. He had to keep his hands in his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> hands in the pocket. I don't want to see your hands. Mm-hmm. You can act without that. Yeah. He's one of the first ones to get off books. So I'm like, you know your lines. You don't need your hands. Exactly. Exactly. And hopefully it was a learning lesson for him. I think, I think he's uh, yeah. a lot out of it. And he's doing a lot of writing. Right. Class. Right. So, so you went to Tish and then what? So after I finished, and while I was at NYU, because I was one of the very few folks who were not rich <laughs> going to NYU because of the Jewish <laughs> population, uh, I did a lot of technical theater. I basically, um, there was, there was a, um, what was it, The Village Voice. Mm-hmm. And they would always have these ads for, you know, folks who wanted to do side jobs and stuff like right. that. So all through my going to school, I did uh, stage managing, light operating, sound operating, and worked at a lot of theaters uh, throughout uh, New York. Uh, and got to sort of get a bird's eye view of good theater, bad theater, right. how theater is built. Right. You know, in school I learned about, you know, acting and technique. Right. But in doing a lot of um, working with companies, off-off-off-Broadway companies, mm-hmm. I got to see the mechanisms of how theater uh, companies are created. Um, the Italian American Repertory Company. There was a wow. company called um, Shoot um, um, Survivor Productions. They they specialized in Victorian theater, uh, oh. like Peg of My Heart and Dracula and um, and that sort of stuff. They even did an outside version of King Arthur, which is really wonderful, and uh, oh. Rotunda. So, but I got homesick and my girlfriend broke my heart. <laughs> so I hit, I, you know, hightailed it back to Washington, D.C. and, um, and dropped theater, cold turkey, mm-hmm. and just worked on, my dad's a singer. And so I started writing for him and we had aspirations of, you know, making it big, but, you know, a bunch of 40 year old men <laughs> in the age of New Jack Swing wasn't going to do it. Right. Um, but I worked at a lot of federal government jobs and I learned, um, about HTML and coding and that sort of stuff. And um, I landed a job here in San Francisco for the district attorney's office and, re- and discovered, wow, there's theater here. <laughs> what? I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and did you start, uh, I mean, my, our first interaction was more on the technical side as, as exactly. a stage manager. Yeah. So you started in that area. Here. Exactly. So there was a guy named Michael Tower who uh, put up a, uh, a bulletin board. This is before Facebook. This is before Craigslist. Right. I mean, the early days of the Internet was really, really interesting. Um, and I was on AOL, America mm-hmm. Online, <laughs> and they had these bulletin boards. Yeah, you can Google that, young <laughs> Exactly. And <laughs> I know people who still have AOL emails. Really? Yes. Whoa. Like, that works. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's strange. But Michael Tower put up a bulletin board saying, hey, I'm creating a theater company called Bay Stage, and I want writers, I want actors, I want tech people, anyone. 
And I responded to that. I was like, hey, it'll be fun to get in the theater again. And I responded. And we did the three productions. We did one, um, we did uh, a thing called Tinker's Nebula at the Contra Costa uh, ca- uh, County Theater. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, participated in the Fringe Festival mm-hmm. at the exit. And uh, then our last production was Water Buffalo with uh, Bob Zick. Bob Zick actually produced it. Yeah. His poster. He loves that. He loves Uh Yeah. Well, actually, Water Buffalo is uh, it, not Buffalo by David Rand. This is oh, a Water Buffalo, sorry. an original piece. And it was fraught with all sorts of, yeah, it was fraught. I mean, you know how peaceful Bob Zick is. He wanted to fight the director. The director was just asking him to do all sorts of things and spend money. And he just was just livid. As uh, a producer. As a producer, as an actor, and just out of his hair. And as a stage manager, I had to do a lot of hand-holding. It was like, hey, everything's going to be okay and, Mm -hmm. and whatever. So that ended, yeah, base stage. And then he got involved in... A group called uh, ISIS, uh, ISIS Arts yeah. Collective with Mike Ward, who passed away. Oh, uh-huh. And while we were, uh, I think we were, we were sharing a rehearsal space, a rehearsal area in the South Market with EastEnders. And that's where I met you. And I auditioned for you as far as stage managing. And uh, I auditioned, I, we, I stage managed Wonder of the World. I'm curious, where was that? Where was the space? It was I a dance studio. Was, and I can't wasn't. remember what it was called, but oh, it okay. doesn't exist oh. anymore. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was uh, sort of on the west side of, of San Francisco. I can't. I just can't remember it. But yeah, it wasn't like a makeshift dance studio thing. And that was my introduction to EastEnders Repertory Company. And we sucked him in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember um, the. It was. It was Mike Berg. He was the set builder, and we literally built three, it was like buildings. Right. Uh, at uh, at Eureka Theater. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just, it just, weighed, weighed, it just took so much out of uh, so many folks in EastEnders. I mean, people were like, oh. And I think a lot of people just that rocked was for out sick, of right? Yeah, that was for sick. Mm-hmm. That's right. We didn't use it for Wonder. We yeah. had to push it out of the way for Wonder. I was Wonder. like, I didn't have three buildings. Yeah. <laughs> we did have to build a makeshift um what was it? The uh, the the boat. The boat, or the uh, the wow, the um, the Niagara Falls boat. Yeah, the Niagara Falls boat. I've never boat. been to Niagara Falls yet. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience, and then you know, of course, East Enders got me back into acting, getting that on stage, and we did four monologues, four monologues in three hotels at the um, Potrero Hills. It used to be called the Thick House, but now um, it's Potrero Stage now. And then afterwards, we did uh, statements uh, that was 100 years of political theater, right. where um, and that's where I met you. And you started right. getting into writing well, that's there, too, right? Because I don't think we actually met. No, oh. no, I don't think we actually met, but I think, Susan, I think you were looking for actors mm-hmm. to do their readings at the Berkeley City Club, mm-hmm. and right. got me involved yes. in that. Yeah. And that's where I met you for the first time. So, yeah, so that's And you got into writing when you were at EastEnders, too? Yeah, yeah. You took the playwriting class from Chuck? I took the playwriting class from Chuck, and uh, we, you know, uh, there were lots of, um, you know, EastEnders was interesting. You know, they not only worked on traditional stuff, but also uh, worked on uh, fostering new talent and new writings and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And although um, I really didn't have any of my stuff on stage until much later, we did Pride Open, which was uh, in 2000, and I want to say seven. Um, and that was sort of the end of EastEnders. I mean, we just sort of, Chuck was getting old and money wasn't really coming in. 
And I think the state of theater was sort of changing where there were just new companies coming in and um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what's going on. I know that the uh, 2008, the dot com, I mean, the, uh, the economy the really yeah. tanked. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't think people were getting grants as much. Right. <coughs> and yeah. right around the same time we did oh, before the California Art Council disappeared. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. That was crazy. All right, so that's your origin story. Yeah, that's my origin story. Yeah. And then let's have Norman remind everyone as well. Yeah. I was born a poor young black boy. <laughs> you had to walk in the snow. Um, I think my first theater experience was back in Indianapolis. I was born in Indianapolis. And, in, and I'm not sure, kindergarten or first grade, we did a little stage thing. I don't remember anything about it except that I was – not the engineer, but the engine <laughs> on a train. They asked us to bring in our own stuff. So kids brought in um, little wagons, little red wagons, and I had just gotten a tricycle. Very excited nice. about it. So I got my tricycle. Somebody stood on the back behind me, and I rode around the stage, you know, dragging all of these Wagon. um, wagons behind me. So that was the first. Don't really... I really have no other memory of it, and that was at Catholic school, so I started off at Catholic school. Um, we got to California when I was, like, nine, so as he was being born. In the Bay Area or somewhere else? Uh, no, in Southern Cal. Okay. Um, and the first city we ended up in was La Puente, um, which is in L.A. County, and my mom was single, and so summer programming was huge. You know, any program she could sign us up for, she did. So I remember a couple of summers where we would go to these summer programs and they would have some sort of theater camp thing happening. And we'd go. I enjoyed it. I always had a good time. Um, but then we'd go on vacation. So, and I feel sorry having been on the other end of this now as a teacher. I realize this was happened. You get some kid and you're like, this is great. You know, either they're wonderfully talented and you can't wait to use them or you just figuring out how to communicate with them, and you think you're going to be able to pull them up and get them to where you need them, and then gone. Sometimes the day before performance, gone. Oh, wow. Like, oh. So we never finished a show there. But then we moved to Claremont, which is on the very edge of L.A. County. And in middle school in La Puente, I'd been in the band, and I never felt comfortable in the band. And so we moved right before I finished middle school, and I stayed in band, but I still wasn't comfortable, especially moving to a new place. don't know anybody. Just too many things coming at me. So when I got to high school, I said, screw this. And I signed up for a theater class, and they had a class, and it said children's theater. And I just figured that just meant easy theater. <laughs> so, it's the hardest theater there is well, because you have to keep their attention. No, it's still a show. <laughs> I didn't realize it would be a show. I didn't realize that, yeah, anything. I didn't think anything about it. So my teacher, what he would do, and I've stolen this technique. It's a brilliant technique. However many people you got, that's how many people you got to get in the show. That's just the rule. So we did a play called The Butterfly That Brought... Oh, before that, though, seventh grade, uh, my English teacher... We didn't have a theater department in La Fuente, but my English teacher said we want to do a Christmas show. So I still have the script oh. <laughs> for this Christmas show that I did. It was the first time I ever did one of those sort of Christmas pageant-y kind of shows. In the public school? Or was this it was a public school. <clears throat> but so when I got to high school, yeah, I signed up for that, and the first play I did there was The Butterfly That Blushed. 
And I'm not sure if I still have that script. I have the other script. But what I remember is that there were more students than there were roles. So the teacher just started making up butterflies. Uh-huh. So my role was, that's nice. And at least a dozen times throughout the script, he would just plug in, that's nice. That's nice. And so that that was your line? That was my line. Over and over. Okay. the whole show. Oh. I just kept saying, that's nice. All over the, I could throw one <laughs> in if I wanted to. <laughs> and then he caught me for the musical, and he said, you look like a sailor. <laughs> and so he stuck me in The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Oh, fun. And then I just kept doing, I did all the musicals. Um, I actually went out before I got out of high school and did a community theater show because I wanted to feel, see what real theater was like. So, um, yeah, and then by the time I got done, like we did uh, What's Upon a Mattress was the last musical we did when I was in high school. And they wanted me for the lead. But there was a jester role, and I was, a, I was in gymnastics. I'm like, no, I want the jester. I want to be able to cartwheel and do stuff. <laughs> and that began a sort of weird thing in my career where I get offered roles every now and then, and I just decide for one reason or another, I'm not doing that. Like when I was in college... And they had decided it was a musical they wanted to do. And they were going to, it was a community college, and they were going to hire an alum to play the lead. And he got some other gig somewhere, and they couldn't hire him. So they said to me, well, how would you like to play this role? And I said, I'd love to play that role. I have a, a job <laughs> that I would have to miss if I do this, so you've got to pay me. Oh, we couldn't possibly pay a student. I was like, well, what, you want me to drop out of school because Mr. So-and-so you was going to pay? What? Yeah. <clears throat> and that's happened to me a number of times. Um, I went in the Army after high school and then came back to community college, broke up with a girlfriend, and said, i got to get out of L.A. I just And I was making the rounds. It was the weirdest thing. I'm going into L.A. trying to figure out how that monster works. This is the late 70s, right? No, this is uh, early 80s. Okay. And, uh, no, because I went, I, four years I went in the Army. And while I was in the Army, I did shows. I went away thinking, you know, what is that, that uh, quote about um, putting away the things of, of childhood? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I, p- I packed up my toys and my comic books, and I said goodbye to theater. And I went off to the Army and found it incredibly boring and way easier than I thought it would ever be. Which makes sense if you think about it. You can't take the mass of humanity from any country and just sort of scoop up the young men and throw them in a program that needs them to actually be intelligent. But for the intelligent ones, it means you get in there going, okay, I can figure this out. I may not be the fastest guy, but I know if I'm the guy at the back end of this hike, you're going to be literally putting your boot up my ass. So I'll make sure I'm somewhere in the middle, maybe towards the front, but... I'm not killing myself, because it doesn't matter how fast you go, they always push you to go faster. Mm-hmm. I'm not killing myself. I know how this game works, and I'm not getting caught. And that was my time. And so suddenly I'm walking around after a few months of this, and I see a flyer for an audition. I'm like, oh, they get to do theater? And I didn't audition there. That was when I was in training. But when I got to Korea, I did. I did Greece and... Um, they happened on the way to the forum and Tim the Indians. Okay, on the on the base. On the base, okay. yeah. Um, and so, and then I got back and I thought I would do more, but because um, I I spent my first year in Korea overseas, I came back to Washington, and I thought I would do show. I did end up doing shows there. It was the first time I started doing black theater, 
which was kind of weird but kind of cool. There was one called Five on the Black Hand Side. There's a really bad um, musical from my, um, what's his name, Langston Hughes piece called Simply Heavenly. It takes just to be simple. Mm. That character, that he had, this comic character that he had written all these little anecdotal sort of stories about. Um, and they made a musical with it. Musical's not that good. The music's okay. The rest of it's kind of clunky. I ended up doing a bunch of these. I was like, wow, okay, black theater doesn't suck. I can do this. Um, and then got shipped out to Germany and did Greece again. And I don't even remember what else, but by the time I got back, I was like, okay, this is working. So I'm making the rounds in L.A., going to school, working, and I'm making the rounds trying to, trying to get my foot in the door as an actor. And I remember going down to, what is it called, the Amundsen or something like that. There's a center there, a theater center. And I'm going to some audition, I don't even know for what. And I'm sitting in the lobby, and I see this big guy recognized from movies. And he's on the phone, and he's talking about, well, Chuck says this, and Chuck says that. Well, you know, Chuck can do it, blah, blah, blah. And I realize after all, he's talking about Charlton Heston. <laughs> wow. And it's, um, oh gosh, what's his name? He finally ended up winning a Tony for uh, Death of a Salesman about a decade ago. Hmm. Um, he was in Cocoon, I can't think of his name. Was he um, yeah, Charles Dutton. No, not Charles Dutton, not black. Okay. No, oh, this is a blonde guy. Oh, oh okay. Um, he's big. Yeah. Big, heavy set. I, I can see his face. Yeah. Uh, right, he's very. Jenny. Yeah. Yes. Brian Dennehy. So I'm seeing him, and I'm thinking of him. At that point in his career, he was just a heavy. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, who the hell do you think you are? You're, pra- you're back practically comparing yourself to God. I mean, Charlton Heston, come on now. That's Moses. Mm-hmm. Who do you think you are? He was the last man on earth. He, he, who are you? <laughs> and I'm listening to him. Arr, 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 chuck this, chuck that. And I'm like, okay, this is a weird world. I never got called back for anything, never got to do anything. The weirdest experience I had in L.A. was, again, a lesson that I wasn't ready to learn. I went to try and get an agent. They said, oh, okay, that's nice. Um, we're not going to sign you, but you leave us some of your headshots and resumes. And I was just so insulted by that, I didn't do it. Well, I get up here, and I got the same thing. Um, I went to CalArts and broke up with a girlfriend and was like, okay, I'm, I'm out of the Bay. I mean, I'm out of California. Oh, yeah. L.A. is not doing it for me. Me and L.A. are not jiving. I'm getting away, and if I get away... That means theater's not working. I'm done with that. And I was a really good student. That didn't seem to be getting me anywhere. I'm like, I'm done with all that. Done with it. And I moved up here. Picked up a job in a cafe. About eight months later, Richard Talavera, Hmm. his friend Tesso was, I guess we'd met at a party. A friend of a friend introduced us. Oh, yeah, Norman does theater. I'm like, I didn't say anything. I don't think I know. I don't. Tessa goes away and says, Richard is looking for an actor for a play he'd written, and he needed a black guy. So she gets my number, they call me up. I went eight months without doing theater. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm not getting away from the theater thing, so I better go back to school, because I know how long that takes. <laughs> and I went back and got my bachelor's, and I've been doing Bay Area theater ever, ever since. <laughs> and how long have you lived in the Bay Area? <clears throat> since 84, so over 30 years, yeah. Nice, nice. So I'm, I'm intrigued by what you said earlier about black theater. Um, what did you find in addition to the fact that they're knowing there was theater that was African-American focused? What was it about it that 
really appealed to you and drew you in to do well, more about So, like, I read Raising the Sun. You couldn't get through school without reading yeah. Raising the Sun. Even I had to read it. Right. <laughs> um, and it's an amazing play. It's a wonderful play. And and it's Sidney Poitier. I mean, oh, my God, this incredible. But what I love about Sidney Poitier and his career that I didn't see for most black actors was he got to play characters with dignity. He got to play characters who refused to be squeezed into some box um, that didn't express who they were or what they were about. And so I was like, okay, that, I, but I've only seen that in the movies. So um, before I got out of high school, my mom, I left theater, so my mom took us downtown to see shows. We saw Bubbling Brown Sugar. Mm. Yeah, I, did, I did the musical. It's a horrible okay. show. It's not a play. The yeah. music is incredible, yeah, but right. it's not really a play. And we went and we saw The Wiz. When the first tour of The Wiz that came through California, we went and we saw The Wiz, which is amazing. It's gorgeous. And the sense of black culture is just, that's what makes it. If you've ever read the script, which I have done it, so I've since done it. And the script sucks. The script is horrible. The script is so Chitlin Circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they did was they just, they took like Chitlin Circuit goes to Broadway. They, they glammed it up. <laughs> yeah. The timing was incredible. The beats and, you know, the sophistication of it was amazing, but it still was basically a glamorous um, minstrel show, as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that. I didn't want that at all. So when I got up to Washington State and I got to do some theater, I'm reading really nice plays, really good stuff. Five on the black head, and also stuff that is picking up the period. It's not old-timey stuff. Right. Not everyone is a servant in the... (laughs) Well, there was or a uh, set in a barbershop. Uh-huh. Right on the black-hand side is set in a barbershop. Okay. Um, and it also helped me with my skills. So I played not one of the major roles, but there was a second barber in the barbershop. That was me. So there's whole scenes that happen in the barbershop where I have a handful of lines. But I'm on stage, and my director was really smart. I've also stolen this as a director. Give the actors something to do. Because especially an actor who doesn't have enough lines and doesn't have the skills, will just stand there, stuck on yeah. stupid. Just stand there doing nothing. So every night, I cut this guy's hair. Every night. And he was one of the main guys in, in the scene. So he's having a conversation while I'm cutting his hair. So I get to figure out where I need to be unobtrusive and where I can actually, like I can have a moment where I say, sit still. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just little things. People would come up to me after the show, you you cut that man's hair. I'm like, seriously, you think every night I cut his hair, I would just lay the comb on his head and put the scissors on top of it and snip around. And But, you know, it made me become an active, you know, act, it kept my, I kept my, act, my character active mm-hmm. anytime I was on stage. I learned that. And nobody really told me to do it. I just started figuring it out. So that was beautiful. It's simply heavenly for as much as I complain that I don't think it's a great thing. It, again, taught you that for a show like that, what needs, what you need to make it work is those live actors on stage really filling out the characters and finding the story. And I got to see beautiful actors doing that and a whole range of black folks. Claremont is white. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't experience that. Catholic school is largely white. So I didn't experience any of that anyplace else. Suddenly, I'm just immersed in it. And these people like me, and I like them, and I can talk like little white boy from the suburbs, because that's basically how I was raised, and they don't have a problem with me. So it's like I walked away from that going, okay, yeah, I could do this. Nice. I find plays I like, I could totally do this. Nice. And then 
about 10 years ago, I think, mm-hmm. um, you guys did a reading of, I don't know what, what it was, a play. Was at, a was it a, you did a whole production. So it wasn't Richard Wright's Centennial okay. was 2008. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really exactly 10 years ago. Yeah, it was 10 years ago. <laughs> and so Richard Talabera came to me and said, I want to do a play about Richard Wright. And he tells me all these amazing things about Richard Wright. And I'm like, wow. So I agreed to it as a producer. I have a small company in Oakland, Oakland Public Theater. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I think I can get this together. And he says, cool, I don't want to write a word of it. I'm like, what? <laughs> so he said, well, there's all these books and there's all this stuff. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. So we started for a summer, for about four months, we did a reading every week. He and I and his wonderful little old lady who just volunteered herself to do this. We'd get together, we'd read through all this material, and, and after a while, we, we slowed it down to every other week. And we'd discuss. We'd read the autobiographies, or we'd read, you know, some other stuff. We'd read, there were articles. And sometimes you'd see a reference to something, and you'd say, well, let's see if we can find that. Mm-hmm. And what it ended up being in the show, what it ultimately ended up being was this wonderful layering on stage. So let's take Native Son, Richard Wright's most famous novel. Um, so you take a scene from Native Son, but you take a scene that's being referenced in a review or like an Atlantic article or something of Native Son so that you get that voice. And maybe in that interview, they're actually interviewing Richard Wright, and then they put a little snippet of there. So we would take and dump a whole scene in there, have the biographer who is writing about the Atlantic article who's interviewing Richard Wright about Native Son. You get four layers, and that's what we put on stage. So to create that thing, we did a year's worth of readings. And I, by that point, I'd known Rich. Um, I remember what I became conscious of you was statements. Um, I knew about EastEnders before there was EastEnders. I knew Chuck and I knew all those folks. Mm-hmm. Craig and I had done a show together. Chuck had directed. And then they said, we're starting a theater company, but we got no money. And I was just at the point where I was starting to get paid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I... I can't go back. Yeah, I, I cannot go back. I'm yeah. sorry. Um, so then when Susan Evans came into the company, she said, we are considering using equity. I said, great, and we're going to do this play statements. I got them to do statements when I was in college because I loved the play so much. So and I wanted to do it and ended up not getting cast. Oh. Ugh. Yeah, it was frustrating. <laughs> but um, so when I heard this, I'm like, oh, God, I'm so excited. And she says, but, you know, okay, so um, we're, you know, we're casting right now. And it was like four months before they would even go into rehearsals. And it was just as all the Shakespeare companies were casting for the summer shows. And they pay. Yeah. <laughs> all of them. They yeah. pay. Or not anymore. There's a lot that don't. But um, at that time, the theater companies, and I was on the radar of these theater companies. So I'm like, I have to do these auditions, and i got to hear whether or not I got this. This would be a summer gig. This is like ten weeks right. of work. I can't make that commitment, but I would know a couple of months before you need to go into rehearsals. And she said, nope, I need to know now. So I was like, okay. Well. Yeah, because that's possibly ten weeks of more than ten weeks of pay and your health insurance. Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't equity at the time. Oh, you weren't. Oh, okay. Oh, at that point, no. No, I don't think I was equity oh, okay. at that time. Um, maybe, I don't know. Do you know what year that was? That was, um, I'm looking at the poster right now, yeah. 2003, I think. Oh, okay. So I was. I was, I was equity. I'd been equity for maybe three years at that point. Okay. And three or four years at that point. <coughs> so 
I said, I don't know. I, I learned not to say no, so I wasn't saying no, but she just was like, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> and she got Reg to do it. And I was like, who is this? Who stole my role? <laughs> and I heard good things about the show. Uh-huh. I did end up doing a summer thing, so okay. that worked out. But um, I heard good things about the show. And so, yeah, when I was looking for somebody, I was like, well, what about that guy? Where, where do I find him? And so then when we were doing the readings, and, you know, part of it is when you're doing historical, historical figures, you want to represent those figures. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, and Richard Wright doesn't look like anybody else that I've ever seen. You're right. He doesn't really. But Reg looked close enough, and I was like, well, let me see what Reg can give me. And Reg, because the other thing is we're doing these little snippet things, so you as the actor really need to have the whole story in your – you have to embody a whole story where we're only going to do like a scene, half a scene of what it actually is. And you need to be able to turn on a dime. You need to be able to do that one, let it go while we go back to the biographers, and then be ready to jump into the next one. And we were doing – for the readings, we did ten – Ended up, we had planned 10. I actually got a grant to do 10 readings, 10 monthly readings. We ended up doing 11. Just screwed up the calendar and we ended up doing 11. <laughs> but each one was a different uh, topic. So Richard Wright was a communist. So we did one about being communist. Um, one that was about the church, all of them, and their relationships to the church, because they all had it, um, particularly Baldwin and Richard. Um, but just different uh, boys yeah. growing up. It sounds fascinating to address it that way. And so you, how, how was that for you, that experience? Oh, I totally enjoyed it. It was interesting you know, listening to Norman talk about, because you opened it up with black theater. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. during the 70s, and it was considered the chocolate city. Right. Not so much now because of gentrification, but such pride in being black. I mean, we were just injected with it when we were kids. Alex Haley's roots right. going on, mm-hmm. and we saw, you know, Bill Cosby before we knew he was a, <laughs> right. a rapist, but, you know, I mean, just Bill Cosby, right. Cosby Richard Pryor, right. Richard Pryor, yeah. Uptown Saturday Night, mm-hmm. Black Music, I mean, W-H-U-R, The Quiet Storm, Donnie Simpson, oh, you know, all of that, we right. were just drenched in it, right. and so I grew up saying, hey, I'm black and I'm proud, and, you know, we mm-hmm. just had, you know, just like such such pride. And it's fascinating when I moved to San Francisco, you don't get an awful lot of that because, you know, you get right. people, you get African-Americans who have migrated from, let's say, the Deep South or they right. didn't grow up with that great sense of pride. Right. And even the theater that we did in uh, Duke Ellington, I remember we did scenes from Soweto mm-hmm. where I played Nelson Malubani, mm-hmm. uh, a guy who uh, was being tortured, you know, because of South Africa. You know, we were talking about apartheid South Africa in the mid-'80s before it became a real right, thing. Right, And I was like, wow, this is a real education. So that's sort of the background that I came from. Did you know about these authors before that? Well, I, I sort of knew Richard Wright right. um, because of just reading, but I didn't have a really conscientious knowledge. Mm-hmm. One of the unfortunate things about um, public schools is, like, you get a curriculum, you know, a teacher has about that much time right. to teach whatever, right. and if you have any – you know, additional questions is like, listen, that's not part of the curriculum. Listen, we got to move on. And, and Richard Wright really was just <clears throat> sort of erased from American history. People know Native Son, they know Black Boy. That's about it. They don't know much else. Um, the communist scare happens just as after he left, and he's a convenient punching bag for them because he's out of the country, mm-hmm. so he's not. And he, it's not a. 
directly affecting his career because he's out of the country. So he's not pushing back on it much, and they just and all these other black writers are coming up who don't have that particular taint, and the American consciousness very quickly just sort of forgets who Richard Wright right. is. Yeah. I actually had to Google yeah. like the characters in your play before yeah. I before I read your yeah. script because I was like, I need to know yeah. what's mm-hmm. going on yeah. here. And the cool thing about doing Richard Wright, even the reading before the dream. And it was a thrill doing the readings. Um, and, you know, we're going to libraries. Yeah. We're going to schools. Centers, yeah. I'm, telling my, I'm telling, you know, the folks at the office, hey, I gotta, I'm taking a half day off because I'm doing the reading. And I don't remember us getting paid or anything at all. But oh, it's no, a, it wasn't much. It, was it, like it wasn't much, bucks. yeah. But it, was, it reminded me that there was a civil rights movement, and there were intelligent black people before Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Yeah, because exactly. when you ask someone generally – Tell me about the civil rights movement. Well, there was the March of Edmund Pettus Bridge, and there was Rosa Parks, right. as if everything prior to that was W.E.B. Du Bois. Sure. But it, and no one will know. Yeah, there was guy named W.E.B. Du Bois. What did he do? Uh, oh, he was one of them dudes. Yeah. <laughs> Booker T. Washington. What did he do? Uh, something about Everyone the knows the name. Like, was yeah. He, yeah, was he on the train? Did he work on the train? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And so... This was 10 years ago, and, and, and were you, ever since that show, mm-hmm. had you been, like, thinking about these authors, and well, because he, it inspired you then, asleep. right, because it inspired you then to write yeah. a play about them. You know, when we did Before the Dream, we had such a wonderful cast. We had Tam Dewey, we had Abby Roan, uh, we had um, Aquanetta Summers. Mm-hmm. We never wanted it to end, and right. uh, I, I even wanted my, my family to see me as Richard Wright, because they had never seen me on stage prior to, it, yeah, I have to go all the way back to NYU, right. the last time they saw me on stage. Wow. Um, because they didn't have the money to come. And, uh, you know, we so we, there was problems with the noodle factory because right. it wasn't built up. It wasn't officially open. Yeah. So oh. we were performing in a space that was fenced off. It had a construction fence around it. We had to put a little sign at the opening saying, in here, come in yeah. here. Oh, wow. As a matter of fact, Castillo didn't want to go, want to go on stage. Yeah. Like, I don't know. There was almost a mini uh, revolt because mm-hmm. he was like, you know, this is asbestos and uh, I can't breathe right oh, was all, they, <laughs> So they did a fancy remodel on the whole building except for the theater space. They created a shell and then they didn't do it. So the floors before we got the actors in were horrible, like uninhabitable. And by the time the actors got in, they were just bad. They were just really bad. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, they, these are the situations. But aside from that, it was, a, it was a rich and a wonderful performance. I think we got a decent amount of audience members in. Yeah. But we well, especially like, once we got to the city. We got to take the show to the city. To Teatro de la Esperanza, right? Mm-hmm. Teatro yeah. de la Esperanza? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Gorgeous little black box space. Um, if you know where the old theater Rhino was in that yep. red big building, yep. there was another theater space just the other end of the building. Just above. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, well, and at the other end. Uh, yeah. You know, and... Um, and, yeah, we got to squeeze the show in there, and it was a squeeze, except that I had been thinking about that footprint when we did the original show. So I just knew in the original space, they actors had these insanely long crosses to get into the playing area mm-hmm. in full view of the audience. There was no getting around it. Yeah. Suddenly, we didn't have that. Like, you stepped you onto the space, you mm-hmm. stepped into, you stepped, because you were either in that black box or you were out. So actors would just have to step in, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were on. Yeah. And, yeah. But we made it work. And I did. I did think about, you know, just Richard Wright because he reminded me 
one of the, you know, when you create a character, you're creating a historical, especially someone who is established, you have a historical figure. But people may not bond to the historical figure to sort of make it personal. Richard Wright reminds me so much of my dad. Um, Not so much the, you know, there is an intellectual, I mean, you know, my dad really reprided. Our family prides ourselves in sort of being smart and whether it's street smart or, you know, being very good in school, you know, we are stressed in being articulate, Mm -hmm. you know, not saying ain't or or, and all that sort of stuff. But also just the artist trying to trying to um, achieve something and, and failing to do it. And you don't have to be understand Richard Wright to sort of understand that. You know, my father was a, you know, he, he wanted to be an, the next Temptations. You know, he had a group in the 70s and he wanted to, um, to achieve that sort of thing. But of course, he made sacrifices for me, for the family. And also, you know, everyone doesn't get that, you know, that slice of the pie. And when I looked at Richard Wright, and especially, you know, his life and his death, and the fact that he wanted to, he was about Pan-Africanism. He wanted to sort of expand the civil rights movement to on a worldly level. Um, and he really tried to, it's almost like lifting up a 5,000, you know, barbell. And you don't have... Having just done it, I mean, in the 40s, he had done that in America. He had lifted up the consciousness of the Negro Mm -hmm. to a whole new level. He now wanted to do that globally. Yeah. At the end of his life, that's what he was struggling with. Mm -hmm. And when he did it on just a local level with Native Son, just, you know, exposing people to what does a black person go through, you know, psychologically. That's Bigger Thomas. Bigger Thomas is created by the racism and the hatred, and this is what happens. Well, and you get the south side of Chicago. That's right. And the tenements versus what the other, not far across town, where mm-hmm. these rich people live. Yeah. So you go from a mansion to abandoned tenement apartments that he's hiding in towards the end yeah, of the story. to the end of the story, yeah. And so you have that. And, of course, this was before HUAC, the House on American sure. Activities Committee. This is before the Red Scare. Right. And so Richard had realized by, you know, by drawing consciousness, by pointing a figure, really right. just, you know, just, I mean, you know, when we think about the Trump administration, right. it, everyone has a field day stabbing Trump and just sure. poking at him. But during the 50s, it was dangerous. And yeah, it right. cost him, you know, his visa, and it right. cost him all sorts of troubles, and right. he had to make money. And that's a tragedy. It, it, yeah. you know, it's, so, yeah. ten years later, yes. um, you have written this play. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's Foreman in Paris, mm-hmm. and it's published now. Yeah, you have yeah, yeah. and you can buy it on Amazon. Yeah. Everyone out there listening, mm-hmm. just do a search for it, sure. for Reg's name. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you decided to collaborate with Norman again. Yeah. And um, as you... Only you played more than one role in this show in this mm-hmm. production because you also stage managed it yep. and you also co-produced it, right? Yep. Yeah. And you also starred in it. So tell me a little bit about what that process lo- was like for you. You know, taking uh, this script that yeah, it's you know when I. Um, I guess when I couldn't let go, I knew I, I knew I wanted to write some things. I mean, after when I finished, um, right around the time that I did Pride Open, uh, which was the last EastEnders thing that I did, immediately after that, I think we did Before the Dream. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to write, but I wanted to, I really wanted to create one of the problems that I had, not just with EastEnders, but with a lot of other companies that I've been working on. 
I've been working on other people's passions, other people's right. identity or, you know, but not mine. I mean, not anything that really spoke to me. And I was like, when's the last time I worked on a theater project that really spoke to my culture or something that I was passionate about? And I was like, it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind working on other person's things. So in any case, I began writing. Um, I, I said I wanted to, you know, write. And I wanted to say, let me flesh out the, this, the idea of Richard Wright, but also incorporate Chester Hines' story mm-hmm. and James Baldwin's story. Because these are all just black men mm-hmm. who are friends. Sometimes they're adversaries. It reminds me so much of my dad's group right. when I was growing up. You have four black men who are all trying to make it big, and they're friends. Mm-hmm. But they also, they want to, you know, they want to achieve greatness. And, right. and there's friction. Yeah. And, and there's friction because everyone has their own, you know, uh, you know their own yeah. opinion of, you right. know, what it is. And sometimes you get in the way. Yeah. Right. And so that, and that, that, um, that chemistry, um, it fascinated me. And so I was like, okay, so let me just work. And the way that I write is I... I'll say I'll write, let's say, one paragraph of what I want the story to be, and then I'll chop it up into little scenes, and then I'll just work on scene by scene by scene. And for a while, because I've been working on other projects, I sort of let it go. I started doing musicals. I did. Uh, I got involved in the DMT right. with uh, Candide and One Tin in the Shade or whatever. And then, very interestingly, you brought me back in, Norman. You, we started doing another reading on Richard Wright. Do you remember that? Oh, that. Yeah, recently bookstore. No, since like 2005. Yeah, yeah. Not 2005. I'm sorry, 2015. Yeah, yeah, because it was after Mm -hmm. Mara and I started dating, so maybe 2014. Yeah. Um, We, I got asked to bring in for Black History Month a piece, and there's a beautiful short story. Richard Wright's first book was a collection of short stories, Uncle Tom's Tom's Children, Children. and this was a, a beautiful story called Fire and Cloud. And I felt like it was appropriate for Black History Month because the way our calendar works, we hit Martin Luther King's birthday in the middle of January, January. and then two weeks later we're yep. Black History Month. Right. So I was like, well, I want to do a piece because I've always contended um, Martin Luther King is not 10 years old when this book comes out. And this collection of short stories written by Richard Wright, one of them is Fire and Cloud about a small town in the South and a small southern preacher who is being, everybody is coming at him. All these elements of the community are coming at him. The congregation, um, black folks, because he's a prominent person in the black community, the mayor of the town, um, and these um, agitators, these red, you know, these communists who come to help because a protest has been planned for the local mine. And they're asking the black miners and the black community to support the protest which would be a whole new thing. This would be a coming together that hadn't really happened. Um, and so he's a major figurehead in this, and the story revolves around that. And I'm like, so think about a young Martin Luther King who isn't even thinking about being a preacher yet. He might be a child of God, but he's not a man. And he reads this incredible story about the power of what a, a small southern preacher can do, mm-hmm. small-town southern preacher. Yeah. And so you brought me in to do the reading. And that sort of revigorated out because I, I, I think I did a couple of scenes before, man, but I sort of let it go because I just wasn't motivated. That re-motivated me. And I was like, okay, oh, listen, 
I got let me jump back on this thing. And it's sort of like a kindling, you know, with the fire. And all of a sudden, I, I was like, okay, I just, and I just kept writing and writing and writing. And finally, I had myself, you know, a complete script. Right. And I was very excited about it. And I immediately I told you. And I was like, hey, you know, let me send this to you. And it could have just died immediately. You could have said, well, listen, it needs a lot of work. And I, I would have just, you know, stopped it right there. But you, in the middle of you packing to move to Mara's house, uh-huh. <laughs> you were like, hey, this is fantastic. We need to talk and talk and talk. And so that led to the first reading that we did. Right. And I, I even went back to um, – I went to school. I went to um, Gary Graves' playwriting uh, thing mm-hmm. to a class to see if I can learn, you know, just some skills or whatever, or see if I can refine it. It sort of helped, but I sort of I, I kept things as it is. Mm-hmm. I did some did some tweaks because a good friend of mine, Lamont Rigel, said, "Listen, James Baldwin, he has no, you know, there's nothing in here. I hadn't even written the the scene with him and Francois, you know, together right, in head. Right. Um, and I was like. You know, you, you've got a lot of Richard, but you don't have a lot of James. And right. so if, if anyone who is gay and lesbian, what are they going to get? Because we care about James Baldwin. You know, it's not an interesting thing. And I have a gay friend mm-hmm. who will not stop talking about that because oh. he's so appreciated. Both that and he's a Francophile. And he oh. loves the accents. And I'm like, I'm glad you loved him because <laughs> I, I have limited knowledge. I did what I could do and my actors did what they could do. So yeah. Thank you, Deb. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I know you want to tighten it up, Deb, but um, you know, the experience was fantastic. And working with someone who I care about, I mean, I could have just brought in a director who really didn't care at all. And, and you already knew that Norman cared about this character and yeah. this person. And I, was, I mean. and I was a little afraid that you may have been, oh, my God, I'm doing this again. <laughs> no, so we couldn't do We'd done nothing with Before the Dream because right as we were just about to close, we had just moved the show to San Francisco, I get an email from the family um, saying, so what's up? I hear word that you're doing a thing about my dad. I'm like, oh, um... Oh, this was, um, who was the woman? It was it. And they didn't uh, want to Julia Wright. Julia Wright. Oh. Um, and I was like, uh... And she, I, I should find the email because she just sort of implied, she was hoping that, you know, she was excited that it was happening and hoped she would like to see the script just to make sure that, you know, everything that her father was well represented and, you know, that there wouldn't be any need for any legal action. Oh, my God. That's why you sent it to the granddaughter. I sent it to the granddaughter. <laughs> and I didn't even tell you because I'm sure, you know. Uh, we talked about it. And yeah. I said, well, here's, here are the pluses and minuses. I'll let you make up your own mind. Yeah. And Ellen Hervey, and I won't get too detailed into it, but she did appreciate it. She has a uh, tumultuous relationship with, with right, Julia. With the family. Yeah. It sounds like Julia's a lot like her dad. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Confidential. Not a surprise. Yeah. Not a surprise. But she enjoyed it, and she appreciated the fact that we were keeping the name up. Mm-hmm. And ironically, she learned a lot about her father. Right. Because she has been, you know, she's been in France. they hadn't France. talked about right. right. And she's detached. Right. She went with, right. went with Mama. Right. Right. Well, as a director myself and as the board chair of a playwriting nonprofit, while I'm not a writer, Mm -hmm. um, I do work with playwrights who've written new works. And so I wanted to ask you you both. Um, it's actually a, 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 it's called ScriptWorks. It's a nonprofit um, that supports playwrights um, in Austin, Texas. I've been the board chair for eight years. Um, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, as somebody who works as a director who works with new plays, um, I and, and because you were there at every rehearsal, I'm wondering 
um, from from both your perspectives, how that was good mm-hmm. and how it was um, difficult. The first so I'm going to start with Reg. So the first <laughs> thing I asked Norma is like, do you want me there? Because you, you know, I gave Norma the opportunity to say, listen. I need to sort of have control over this thing, and I can't have someone jumping over my head to say, hey, well, let me talk to Reg to see what he says. And you were very adamant. He's like, I need, I need you to be there. And I think you wanted me to be there because as a writer, you needed me to see what works and what doesn't work. Am I right? Uh, no, well, not just that. Because you were still working on the script. I'm humbled. Uh, yeah, we, we, made, yeah. we made a bunch of tweaks. Yeah. But um, I'm, as a director working on a new piece, I am humbled. And I am very aware of the problem. Anytime you make a new something and you give it to people, immediately they want to take it and they want to adjust this and change that. And you should have done this and you don't need that. And that's the feedback that we give writers. And it's, it's just natural. It's human nature that we want to do that. But what we don't recognize is that means I'm now making it my story. It's no longer your story. I'm making it my story. I wanted him in the room so that if I got too far off of what was his story, I could get an adjustment. I could get a correction. And I've seen it with writers so many times. And the writer may not get there. They may not realize what needs to happen, or they may not see where something is missing or something is falling short. But it's their decision. It's their piece. And we, we... thought about a few little things, mm-hmm. but we were able to reconcile with a, okay, I'm not satisfied, but you are, so I will let it be that way. And that kind of went both ways. I, I feel like he gave me a lot of latitude. In terms yeah. Of that. So were you, you were saying that being there every night helped you kind of learn what worked and what didn't? Was sure. that the best part of I think of, so. It, yeah. From it, a playwright's perspective. Yeah. It helps to be friends. I think if it were anyone else to, let's say, get any constructive criticism, I, I would have taken it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I had lunch yesterday with, uh, I had breakfast yesterday with David Stein, uh-huh. and he talk, He and I talked about um, Appointment at Sonora. That was a piece that he wrote and was presented at the Playwright Center for San Francisco. He gave it to a director, and David was sort of shaking his head because he was like, you know, I thought that I was on the same page with the director, and I thought the director would even talk to me. And what I saw on stage was not what I'd written. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be the hardest thing. I mean, a play is like a child. Right. And you're giving it to a caregiver. Right, right. And if your child is not treated you well, I, and, and Jeannie Baroba talked about this on the podcast before. Right. So it's good to give it to with someone to learn. I think one of the biggest arguments we had was uh, scene 3-3. Three, three. That was the fight scene. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Between Richard and Ellen, because you wanted justification. Why is Ellen leaving? Where is Ellen right. going? Yes. And I couldn't understand doesn't matter. She's leaving. But I did it get it. It does matter. That's something I have to learn. Well, uh, to give her a, yeah. a point of it's, it's, and it's, you know, it's 101 for me. It's 101 acting now. Um, why are you entering the scene? Are you going somewhere and we're seeing you arrive? Or are you leaving somewhere and we're seeing you depart that place? What is it we're seeing? And it's important for the actors to know and it also for the shape of the scene if you got in a fight with somebody and you leave at the end of it, if you were intending to leave at the beginning of the scene, then all we saw is that relationship come apart. But you were leaving anyway, so much more interesting if you were talking about leaving, but you hadn't said it. And by the end of the scene, you're like, I got to leave right this moment. You know, yeah. it, just, it just changes the dynamic. Mistakes get higher. And yeah. it helped us um, for the exposition of she's going to land in London. But 
that's not what the fight is about. You know, the right, fight exactly. Is bigger. Right. When we did before the dream, I did some research on Richard Wright because I wanted Foreman and Paris to be based as much on reality as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's true, Richard died in Paris, and right. Ellen was not there. Ellen right. was in London. And I wondered why. And there's nothing written as right. far as why. Right. And I was like, well, I'm a, I'm a playwright, I'm a creative, so let me create a situation. Mm-hmm. And considering how tumultuous Richard is with right. everyone, right. I figured, well, there's got to be a fight. And also I was interested in the dynamic of an interracial relationship and mm-hmm. how things are not as... As um, as wonderful as 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 black and white as, as black and white, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not the melting pot that everybody yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Light color, chocolate color yeah. comes out. It's of not the reward color. June Cleaver. So no, I like streaks of dark and streaks of light. Well, exactly. it sounded sounds like it, and from what I I went to one rehearsal, um, and it's it seems like a great collaboration. The two of you, yeah. it was, it was and not just for the play. Show? I did see the show. Oh, you did. Okay, yes, cool. yes, yeah. yes. Um, of course they did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you were out of the Hutch and I went. We yeah. talked to you. That's right. My memory's horrible. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, so looking forward, mm-hmm. um, what does that, what did that experience um, lead you to, the work that you guys did together on Four Minutes? Well, I've never been good about following up on on achievements, really, is what, you know, you have to recognize, is if you're building something, your career is this structure of bricks, that each achievement is a brick or maybe a whole wall, and you therefore can make some decisions based on the fact that that's done. And so we, we haven't really talked much about it. I mean, the thing I would offer, Rich, is um, the biggest challenge I've seen for writers is once you've got that piece, and now you've actually got it published, once you've got that solid piece, you can choose now to make a part of your creative endeavor getting the word out about it. Because if they don't know about it, they can't produce it. And that's hard for a lot of writers. A lot of writers feel like, well, I did it. And if it's a really worthy piece of work, people will come. And it's like, you know what? How many artists died poor because nobody knew about it? And now, like, we talk about Van Gogh. Shoot. You know, Van Gogh would have appreciated some of this million-dollar money that comes yeah, out of back then, but he knew nothing about how to promote, and it's so funny, we just went to um, the De Young and saw the Gagan I, I can never forget yeah, the, the artist um, there's a, they have a huge collection of his stuff and there's an international thing going on right now museums are oh. participating in, so they brought out some of theirs and put it up the number one thing positive thing I can say about that man well two, one, artistically his creativity just he tries this, he tries that, he tries the other. Now, tries being the operative word. How successful is he at it? Well, almost every wall, every time you turn a corner, there's some big descriptor of this period. You know, it might be two years, it might be ten years of his life. He kept putting stuff up, didn't get in this exhibit, didn't get in that exhibit. He kept putting stuff up, didn't sell here, didn't sell there. Things that constantly he exploring. He was, he kept, that's the amazing thing about him is that he kept exploring, but you got to give him credit. The man kept saying, well, let's have a, you know, let's do a gallery showing and sell some work, or here's a new movement, we're going to be a part of this exhibit, and then he didn't get in. Never stopped him. And I'm like, wow, got to learn that lesson. Like, I don't actually like his work that much, but I'm impressed with the quantity of his output and the, 
He did pottery. He did wood carvings. The Tahitian stuff, the stuff where he gets over in the South Seas and starts playing with color in a way that he wasn't doing in Europe is is gorgeous. It's some of the most gorgeous stuff. And you can see an eye and a something that he's going for that works better there than it worked in his Parisian stuff. They're like, okay, y'all, and we still talk about him. He's still considered important. Right. And I'm like, well... And I think he also hit at a moment where these robber barons were... Their wives were looking for stuff. So Spreckles, who started the Legion of Honor, was buying. Um, I don't know if De Young is the is the name of the person, but there was another wife who was the huge one buying stuff and putting it at the de Young. They were kind of competing. Okay. And so it's like, oh, well, what else is out there? Well, who hasn't been discovered? Oh, what about this dude? He's doing stuff. And boy, hit it just the right moment (laughs) for a bunch of his stuff to get sold. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, would you rather be that genius that people know a century after you're dead, you're a genius, or would you rather get paid now? Yep. Yep. So are you saying that you want to promote the, the work oh, that I'm you did? Or, I mean, the play itself. I'm yeah. talking to people about four men trying to see yeah. if there's some place to get it up next. Yeah, I was um, talking to I'm talking to a friend about maybe a workshopping it. Yeah, so. this is one of the reasons why I put, like, I remember we had Richard Talavera on, and I'd asked him, have you ever had your stuff pr- uh, produced, I mean, I mean uh, published? And he was like, I wouldn't know why I would need to do that. And, you know, he was very subversiating. And there are a lot of writers. I mean, the writers, creatives, you know, when you think about creating, especially in theater, we create the show, it's produced, and then there's a strike, and then that's it. Right. They may have a poster to remember right. it. Yeah. And maybe not even a recording. And I've always felt, you know, if you had something, especially, you know, like, so I guess my idea was that, I'll, you know, I'll publish it because I think that, you know, I've done all of the writing. Mm-hmm. If anything, if there are any improvements in the writing, I think there should be cuts. But, you know, any theater company can do that. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to pr- pr- promote it, then I might as well have a book that I, that can be promoted. Right. So that I can say, here, here it is. We even have a YouTube video. It's a good strategy. And it's, you know, and now it's the promotion. It's a, it's a muscle. Now you Oh, yeah, I know. But, uh, yeah, but I think that's the muscle that a lot of creatives need to work. Mm -hmm. Because we've we've interviewed so many individuals, Bridget Dunn Portman, Lisa Kong, a lot of writers. Right. But they're interested in the creativity, but not the promotion of it. Because I'm developing a course for um, social media branding Mm -hmm. for actors. So I was talking to some actors in Vancouver who are in AEA, Mm -hmm. and they, they were like, you should you should come up and teach us a class about this. Uh-huh. And I was like, I, I could do that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> right. that's exactly right. Yeah. So I'll help you, friend. Yeah, no, thank you. And, of course, I don't want this to be the one and only play no. that I write. So I'm working on some other projects mm-hmm. and other things. And um, But obviously, you know, um, I hope that, you know, uh, I guess what is it, what's the line in um, in, in Field of Dreams? If you build it, they will come. <laughs> so... It's gotten a lot of, I mean, uh, we lit a kindling, and there's a little fire. Yeah, great. And the fire can die out, or, you know, we can, or get you a can keep feeding it. I'd love to see you keep feeding yeah. it. Yeah. Well, we've gone over time, so I kind of yeah. want to wrap up with, sure. with 
a question for each of you, another question for each of you. What, do, we, do we want to do shout-outs and all that stuff? Oh. Uh, I don't know, because if we're, if we're over time, maybe for the last one, we just don't. Okay. That's cool. How about we didn't you, you shout-out in this yeah, way, yeah. is that, Norman, give give us, your, mm-hmm. your listeners, and Reg and I, the, the top thing that, in 2018, mm-hmm. what was the top thing that you saw or produced or was in or the top theater lesson that you learned in 2018? Oh, geez. One, I, of, one of those. I, I learned lots of lessons. I think the top the top would be, honestly, it's, it's, it's a similar thing, the similar theme. It's easy as a creative, as an artistic, identified person to get lost in your art. And to forget that there's a whole world, and part of the big lesson I learned this year is part of that means you always have to keep that little bit of energy, be it promotion or whatever, that is looking for what else and how does this fit with the next thing. Because um, I I had three fantastic projects this year. I started the year doing Lucia Berlin uh, stories with Word for Word, and ultimately we took that to Paris. So I don't know if you saw the... um, I did, right after Christmas, or maybe it was Christmas Day, I did a little, like, this is my Christmas offering to you all. Um, I got to go do this thing, and I got to take the Richard Wright tour. There's a walking literary tour, and I got to do that tour. I took a bunch of pictures. Um, And it was important to me because of my history with it, but it was also important to me knowing that I was coming back and we'd be working on For Me in Paris. So that was huge. Um, I came back, and I was very fortunate I got to direct a piece. So that was acting. I came back and directed uh, Scapegoat. I'm a comic book nut as well, and this was a piece about a comic book writer and his characters coming to life on stage. And one of the most pleasing reviews I think I've ever gotten in a show, the Chronicle woman came out and said, they start this play, and there's this clunky, stilted language, and the actors are doing this uh, sort of agitprop kind of posy stuff. Um, and then the superheroes pop in. And so they go, oh, it's a comic book. And bing. And so that first scene is a comic book scene, and I knew that I wanted to stage it to make that happen. Even the actors didn't know what I was doing when I was pushing it. And so it just gave me total confidence in I can have a vision of something, and then I can realize it on stage, how to make it happen on stage. And so I start off with just sort of crudely curving and then I keep adjusting, which means I keep apologizing to my actors for these weird adjustments. Uh, and then I went from that to four men. What I should have been doing, just to keep my life sane, was to make sure that I was keeping money coming in the door throughout all of that and keeping my hand out for maybe some auditions and things mm-hmm. that I could have been paying attention to. And instead, I'd get, I'd get into a project like that and I'd just I'd put the blinders on. That, yeah. And I stopped thinking about the rest of them. It was like, no, Norman, you know, too much. No, you still got bills to pay. So, yeah, you can love this project and give it, lose sleep over it and do all that. You still need to get up on Monday morning and spend a little bit of time thinking about what's next. Yes. The business of theater. What about you, Reg? Well, um, you know, this is the one year where one project sort of, you know, just sort of envelops. I don't even think I worked on anything else prior to this. I mean, I did some well, reading. August Neal was last fall. 
That's right. Yeah, Mueller last fall. Oh, wow. Yeah. So really, 2018 was really all about four men in Paris. I didn't audition for, I, I, that's not true. I did audition for um, Dream Girls and didn't get in. But four men in Paris was wildly successful. Sold out shows. Sold Published out books. Yeah. And it's <laughs> it's something that I had not realized. Of course, you, you, you close your eyes and you think about how things will be. And of course, I think about all the wrong things that can happen and, you know, what I need to do to correct. Not a lot of wrong things happened at all with here. I mean, uh, the cooperation we had with the DMT. Uh, Plantos has done a wonderful job. They gave us an amazing amount of John Ritchie. Yes. Uh, and vision, not just, not just support, but their vision of what they wanted to do and how they wanted it to yeah. happen was really helpful. Yeah. So I guess the one thing that I would get out of it is sometimes you just have to, I would think, just believe. You know, you have to create things and just put yourself out there. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, not David Stein, but another friend, Paul Harkness. And I was like, you know, we're all writers, we're actors, we're creatives, we put stories out there, and we want something magical to happen. We want to touch people's lives. And the one cool thing about Foreman and Paris that I'm proud of, it touched people like Curtis. Curtis' lives is, is touched. Right, right. Because he got to be something. Oh, that, many of them, yeah. Yeah, buried the same thing. Yeah. We had Priya on. I wasn't sure. Angelo. Angelo has been completely inspired by Chester Himes. Yeah. And that's, and that's a wonderful thing. That's inspiration. And that's the, that's the job to be done with theater. Mm-hmm. It's not just entertain. Like, you know, you got to see a good show, you get to clap, and then just go on. It should stay within you, mm-hmm. and it should change your perspective. And we did we did that. Mm-hmm. And so now it's now and now I've done it once. I could do it again. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I've created the footprints, and now well, I can. I'll tell you the one, one thing I would love to see in Foreman in Paris, and as this goes forward, I hope you will consider playing Richard. <laughs> I just don't think mm-hmm. we're going to find a better better Richard. Yeah, maybe. Or you. Me playing Richard. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No? Yeah. Well, I think that's a good way to kind of wrap up today's podcast. I'm sorry that we didn't do the usual oh, um, yeah. shout-outs, or, but but um, I'm hoping that everyone who's listening continues to tune in in 2019 to get more inspiration. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and after this podcast is posted on the Facebook page, you guys have a Facebook page yep. for this, right? Yep. Um, <laughs> why don't you, in the comments, listeners, tell us what your highlight of theater was this year, or the lesson that you learned, or, mm-hmm. or the show that really impacted you and inspired you. Um, I, I'll sign off by also saying that I saw A Doll's House Part 2 at Berkeley Rep this oh. year, and it has stayed with me. Wow. And it, in fact, has inspired me to create a class um, where I'm comparing classical works with a contemporary take on it. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the class, we I'll choose an, a, a, an American play and have the students yeah. write um, a 10-minute play. Did you know any actors or actresses that were in it? In, no, I didn't, actually. Okay. okay. No. I didn't know if we had any friends or whatever. <laughs> so uh, I have a friend who's coming up from L.A. doing a show with the Aurora. Nice, very nice. Yeah. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening to the EA. The EA has really grown, and um, one of these days we'll have to talk about the future of the EA and what we want to do and sort of the, you know, mm-hmm. some, of the, some of the wonderful um, yeah. interviews that we've had. Every year is a good time to do sure, that. Sure, we can do that. <clears throat> All right, you can find the A on the Apple Podcast app on all iPhones and iPads. You can find the A on iTunes. Just go on iTunes, um, click on store, use the search engine on the upper right-hand side, and search for the A, and you'll find us. For Android users, download the SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com and search for the A. The A was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise, or if you just want to advertise yourself, 
Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. Instagram. You can find me on Red Space Clay. And I'm at Who's Your Hoosier. And, and DL Carrier. <laughs> 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 <laughs>